Okay. All right, let's go. So my name is Christy Santana and this is Melanie Thorley. So we are both uh, solicitors here at MJT Law. Um, so today we're really going to talk about uh, social media and how it really interacts with employment and mm. the workplace. Um, mm. When we're talking about um, social media, really what we're talking about is Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok. Um, I'm happy to put my hand up and say I've got an account on all of those. I also have a a Twitter account, a Reddit account. Um, so it's kind of never ending. Mm. Um, we know that about three weeks ago, Facebook announced uh, that they are creating what is called a metaverse. Mm. Um, if you've ever watched uh, The Matrix, it's very, very similar. So you would put your virtual reality headsets on and you would essentially walk around a universe. Um, you would go to you know, events very similar to this, we could be presenting you know, in 10 years time to a virtual um, audience instead. So we know that our lives, if they haven't already, are completely intertwined with our personal lives, with our professional mm -hmm. lives. Um, when I was pre preparing for today, I decided to Google myself and if you haven't already done it, I suggest you do. Um, and to my surprise, the first two pages of Google were completely related to MJT Law. There is absolutely no ways you could not determine that I was mm. not working here. If you knew my name, you knew where I worked. Yeah. And I suggest for most people, it's the exact same. Um, so with this kind of intertwining, it means whether employers are prepared or not, they will need to really kind of delve into people's, you know, into a bit of a personal space because it it reflects on them as employers and it can do in, in a damaging way. So what we want to teach you today is firstly what exposure an employer might have when it comes to social media. Mm. And then how do you get on the front foot and once you've identified exposure, how can you get on the front foot and make sure that you've got the tools to really reduce your liability, to make sure that when things go wrong, mm. you've covered all your bases. Um, so why don't we kick it off with, uh, so there's really our key points of exposure. So we've got workplace health and safety. Obviously we all, uh, employers have a primary duty to keep all their employees safe. And that includes safe uh, from mental um, impairment. Um, so we've also got uh, discrimination, harassment and bullying. So with all these, we really thought we might give you some real examples. Um, mm. some. Uh, some cases which have happened in the past, which really highlight you know, how this all happened. So first of all, I want to go through so this case of Robinson and Lorna Jane. We all know Lorna Jane, and this case actually involved uh, the DFO store uh, just over on, on North Brisbane. It involved a, a manager. Um, so she was a store manager, um, and she obviously had a area manager who overlooked um, her store and pretty well from the outset they had a pretty hostile and cold relationship um, and nevertheless um, she would be called things like she was cheap uh, she was called a, a generator which will make sense when uh, they were both also Facebook friends and her area manager posted and I'm going to quote I've discovered a new name for the people I despise. I call them generators. 
purely because they fill their days generating more problems for me to deal with. Generators are similar to mutants, people who are genuine oxygen thieves. Now, she also posted, what a day. It is difficult to soar with the eagles when you're surrounded by turkeys. Is it too late to pursue a different career? So what happened with this case is she, the uh, manager, uh, she felt as though she had suffered a psychological injury as a result of these social media posts and the, I suppose, bullying she was receiving from her area manager. Um, and so she filed a, uh, essentially, a workplace health and safety injury or personal injury claim. Um, she was unsuccessful. And the court really found that the posts themselves couldn't really be linked to her specifically, even though if you put two and two together, you, you think that's probably around her, but they really made the distinction that this particular area manager, when she was making these posts, could have really been about anyone in the entire organisation. But that's really about the area manager itself. So what about the employer? The court found that they had really taken all reasonable steps to avoid the situation because although it had happened and they had taken steps to get on the front foot to have policies in place which meant that this type of behaviour wasn't to be accepted, that it wasn't to be encouraged. What they also did was asked the area manager to immediately remove the posts. They also disciplined the area manager. They also removed her from the area that she was managing to a different area so that the two employees wouldn't come into contact. And really the court came to say that these were quite practical steps mm. that had been taken and there wasn't really much else that the employer could have done to avoid the harm and, and reduce it in that way. So when we're kind of thinking about the takeaways there is what can the employer do to firstly make sure that all employees know that this type of behaviour isn't to be accepted in the first place. But if it does happen, what can we do to stop it? Mm. So that's really workplace health and safety, but I know that you have uh, some case around discrimination. I do have a case around discrimination. This is about a security guard who works in the airport. Now, this is a really interesting case. It's a, um, it's a case in England where a, um, a person posted a gollywog on their Facebook page and said, let's see how far he can travel before Facebook takes him off. Come sit down. Um, and the image was shared. Uh, the image was a gollywog. So one of those, uh, yeah. And uh, the image was shared around and the applicant themselves complained of harassment and and said that, you know, they found that offensive. And the, the, the person who put it up, you know, apologised, took it down, and so on and so forth. But when we're thinking about how that works in a working environment or a working setting, what we've got is an employee who's popped a, what has been considered by somebody else an offensive image, um, popped an offensive caption on it, and then it's been shared at work. So when we're thinking about social media in the workplace, this is a really good example. And the, uh, the court came up with a really interesting um, statement. The tribunal 
um, considered whether the respondent had taken, been the employer, taken all reasonable steps to prevent the employee from doing this discriminatory act. And its conclusion was the, tr the, the tribunal takes into account that the respondent has policies which make clear that the behaviour complained was unacceptable. They were also satisfied that in signing contractual documents, the respondent brings these policies to the attention of the employees. And in terms of publish publishing the policies and auditing and monitoring the policies, they've got no evidence as what steps they took, but they do have evidence that the respondent not only says it takes the matter seriously, but in this case did take it seriously and um, started disciplinary proceedings against the employee. Now, this case was unsuccessful in linking the employer to the Act. But here in Australia, vicarious liability exists, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. Um, and we believe that the, the image would have been linked back to the employer and the employer would have been vicariously liable for that image. Um, and the result would have probably been the same anyway because the employer took steps to mitigate that loss, to, to deal with it at the time, thereby reducing their liability. Because an employer, as employers, we know that there's only so much we can do. Can't stop people from doing stupid stuff. But we can deal with it when it's happening. And we're going to talk a little bit about how to deal with it when it's happening a bit further down um, this presentation. But this discrimination one's really interesting mm. because the Scollywog image was, was actually discriminatory. It, it, the, the images, uh, even under Queensland anti-discrimination, would, would be considered discriminatory. So how does an employer stop this sort of thing from happening? And in this case, it was their policies and the, and the application and implementation of the policies that helped them reduce that mitigation of liability. Uh, yeah. Was that from the, through the employer's social account or the employee's? The employee's. So employee's private account. Employee's oh, private account posted this image. Someone um, from the workplace has found that image and it's been sent to them and yeah. they've found that offensive and they've complained in the workplace of discrimination. Right. So yeah. not the employer's social account? No, we're not talking about situations where the employer is up to mischief. We're yeah, talking about with the employee to it, having access to the employers. This account, is not about the employer's yeah. Facebook page. Yeah, right, okay. These are all yeah. personal page, Facebook pages. Yeah. And uh, we, we talked a little bit earlier on about how um, these days, and certainly in recent times, uh, people, individuals have been using their social media more often. I certainly know for the first time in years I've used Facebook more in the last two years than I have probably in the last mm. decade. And uh, if you have friends who are also work colleagues on your Facebook pages, then it's likely they're going to get access to that content as well. And this, this is what's creating the problems. So we're here today to talk about how to reduce and mitigate those issues. But you've got another one. Yeah, so got one about harassment. So I'm going to focus on uh, sexual harassment in this particular example, but it should be said that harassment can be for a number of different reasons. But as we know, sexual harassment is, is a really topical and it's quite a big issue at the moment. Um, so this case involves um, a gentleman that uh, he was at the pub one night. Uh, he probably had one too many. And when he got home, he had a sort of a Facebook messenger group, as a lot of us do, 
um, with 19 individuals, a number of them were colleagues, and for whatever reason, he decided he'd post um, quite a lot of pornography onto this page. Um, now, it should be said, none of the colleagues and none of the people in the uh, Facebook group, or the Facebook messenger group, had any issue with it. They didn't have any, they weren't finding it offensive or anything mm. like that. Now, this particular person was dismissed, and he was dismissed for sexual harassment. And the thing that the commission found was, despite the fact that it didn't actually commit harm, the test is really an objective one. So the test is, was it unwanted? Was it sexual of nature? Mm. And does it have, would it cause a reasonable person to feel offended, embarrassed, or, uh, 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 sorry, harmful? And the dismissal was upheld and the commissioner really had quite a lot of comments to say and, and quite a lot of compliments for the, uh, for the company because they really got on the front foot and they had policies in place and they implemented despite the fact that it didn't cause harm. They knew that abundantly that behaviour was not to be accepted. Um, it's, it's quite clear mm. you shouldn't really be sending pornography to your colleagues. But it doesn't matter that they didn't, they didn't find it offensive because that particular employee, when he sent those images, he couldn't have possibly have known that the people on the other side of that wouldn't have found that offensive in any way. And it's really important, I suppose, for employers to remind themselves that policies are only really as good as they are implemented. And implementation takes strength. It takes mm. almost courage to put aside a number of some of the practical elements and really enforce them for what they are. So where there is abundantly clear, mm. abhorrent behaviour that it really be punished for or, or disciplined for. Could you actually um, elaborate on um, what is discrimination? So if, um, you two actually find something that's not offensive and five of us says that it's offensive, who's right and who's wrong. Okay, discrimination doesn't take, doesn't require a guilty mind. So to be discriminating, you don't require the feeling of being discriminating. Let me give you an example. I had, a couple of years ago, a woman call me and she says, I'm five months pregnant and my boss has told me that, um, that my boss came up to me and she said to me, look, I remember what it was like when I was pregnant and I was really tired all the time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to reduce your travel to zero and I'm going to reduce your job to make sure that you're not feeling really tired and we will get you through this pregnancy. Now, the boss thought she was doing something really nice, but in fact it was incredibly discriminating against this woman who was five months pregnant. So it doesn't require the person who's been discriminating to feel they've been discriminating doesn't require that um, that additional step. What does it require? I'm sorry? What does it require then? There, there's, there is a, a, an objective element, but it's a lot of subjectiveness when it comes to discrimination. When we, t when we think about discrimination, we think about, first of all, the subjective element. Does the person feel discriminated against? And we know that we've recently we've got these new sexual harassment laws. And uh, it's really about does that person feel like what happened was sexual harassment? But then it, the, the objective 
element is not the objective element from the person who has discriminated, but objectively, would this be considered something that might be discriminating? Does that make sense? It, so, really, it really comes to that kind of, and, and it happens all the time yeah. in law, this reasonable test. And what a reasonable test is, is I think it's when you really go back to old English lawyers. The guy uh, that sits on the number 11 bus in London. So just your average person. What would your average person yeah. on the street think of it? Yeah. But you can, you can fight that, can't you? You can what, sorry? Fight that. What, well, what do you mean? You're saying this is, um, um, you're discriminating, and the other person says, no, I'm not discriminating, I'm just actually taking care of you. That's discrimination, because you're actually pointing them to that discrimination. Point what about if you asked the pregnant lady, would that then be different? Or is it still... Are you asking for a way to have that conversation without yeah. being discriminating at the How same you, time? You, yeah, if, if the pregnant lady is five months pregnant, uh, like posing that question to them, well, I think I think there were. I think the language could have been polished at the time. The employer could have asked more questions to the employee what they wanted, because pregnant women aren't disabled. No. <laughs> so <laughs> they don't necessarily need to have their jobs reduced because because they're pregnant. Um, it doesn't make it a lot of sense anyway. Uh, I think probably the. The, the better conversation could have been that the employer wanted to know how to support that pregnant woman throughout mm. the pregnancy until they took time, instead of putting their hand up and saying, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think employees are also in control of how they perform as well. And if it came down to a performance issue, there may have been better questions asked. But at the time, there was nothing there was no performance issue. Is the um, um, employee actually responsible for duty of care if a woman's pregnant? Duty of care? Yeah. Well, an employer has a duty of care to all employees, yes. whether they're pregnant or not. Well, obviously if someone's pregnant, obviously they actually have another... You're talking about levels of duty of care? Yeah. An employer has the same level of duty of care to all its employees to make sure that they are in a safe and healthy working environment. Okay, but in her circumstances, it's changing over a period of you know, nine months. The difficulty they would have had if you kind of go down that sort of thought process is how are they going to be the ones to determine mm. how much risk she is at? You know, we are just lay people. They could have gone to us as lawyers and we would have told them the same thing, which is we're not really qualified to give that type of assessment. Um, how much risk is she actually at if she does yeah, X, Y, and Z? You know, so and neither is their employer. In, in, if you're on, like on a building site on top of that and you know, you're, you're pregnant, you know, this is, does the person actually just say, look, if you're on a building site, you're pregnant, stuff like that. This is, we don't have you know, uh, emergency you know, procedures for um, pregnant women on, on building sites, you know what I mean? I suppose right. it comes down to, is she able to do their job? Do their job. Remember, we're talking about an employer-employee relationship. So if that employee is able to perform their duties in the same, in the same way... But if the, but if the woman actually um, you know, breaks the water on top of that, obviously it's a, you know, she's got to be rushed to the hospital. It's, it's, you know. Okay, but well, are you saying she's, woman... She's just about to actually get birth. So, so is your question, how do you mitigate potential emer uh, medical emergencies yeah. in a situation where we can foresee something might be happening? Well, if she's nine months pregnant, you know, that's right, not, not five months, not right. two months. I've never been pregnant, but it's my understanding that most females will stop work before they before they give birth to their babies. Refuse to stop work. 
Excuse me? I'm sorry? What if she wanted to continue working while she's actually almost about? Well, again, the employer has a responsibility from a work health and safety perspective to keep... Yeah, but what's his responsibility if she's about to actually give... I mean, people give birth in taxi cabs, and, you know, and, and, you know, and train stations and stuff like that, too, I mean? They, they don't stop, you know... So are, we, are, are you talking about a one-off situation where no, something... No, one-off, you know, there's lots of people that actually have um, births in taxi cabs or, and, um, you know, just before, you know, um, you know, getting, having deliveries, going to the hospital. I think, I think perhaps applying a, a, a suitable should we test. What's going on here? Is this a safe and healthy working environment for the, for the people involved? Yeah. And then having better conversations about it. So what's, what's the employee's... It's not really woman wants to continue work up to the point of birth. There is some, there is some um, help in relation to that in the Fair Work Act. You can ask your employee to attend a medical examination to make sure that they're capable of doing their work from moving forward. You're well within your rights to do that. And generally they... Uh, the if they don't starts. get clearance to work... What is the um, point... Um, baby comes out on the day that... <laughs> okay, you're talking about a very narrow set of circumstances. Oh, you did, all you're doing is actually just covering a basis for the employee. You know, to say, you know, if you... Because I've been on job sites and stuff that we're in the middle of nowhere. And we've had, but when was the last job site you were on that someone actually gave birth? No, no. Right. So yeah, I'm not I'm sure you're talking about a set of we, circumstances we, that sit in the real world. That's, yeah. the, that's the problem here. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, you had a question, sorry? No. Oh, I was just going to make a comment that it would come down to any employee that may potentially have an issue. They've sprained their ankle or they had a horse problem on them or something like that. You're going to be asking for, here's a list of your duties and you're required Can you to perform them? this. Can you get your doctor to confirm, yes, you're still able to do that? And if not, what can you do and what accommodations do we need to make? Yes. All right, I think we can probably move on from that one uh, to our last one about bullying. We're both bullying, yes. A very emerging... It is a very emerging issue. I think, um, yeah, people are... We're getting a lot of... A lot more uh, workplace bullying cl um, cl complaints coming through our office. This is the one where three employees, a manager and two subordinates, each made an application for an order to stop bullying. Now, I need to let you know that this organisation... Um, had a lot of problems. There was, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but the, the new chap that was involved in being the Organisational Effectiveness and Change Manager, which I'm going to assume in this case is the really a really long-winded term of calling someone HR, um, said that... Uh, since starting my role at the terminal, I've been involved in management and employee concerns about inappropriate workplace con conduct. Given my day-to-day -day involvement in these concerns, I observed high levels of distrust among the workforce at the terminal. And so this is an endemic problem by the looks of it in this particular organisation. Um, and amongst other um, things, the employees were complaining of false rumours which were posted on Facebook about other employees. Um, the posts were on um, on particular employees' Facebook pages, but other employees and friends could see them. Specifically, posts alleged that the employee was receiving favourable rosters and therefore receiving a greater amount of overtime because they were sleeping with a manager. 
And the post alleged that every employee knew of the relationship and an involved employee who was married. So this is, this is not, you know, this is stuff we hear, right? This is happening in this workplace. And uh, the Commission found that the behaviour was unreasonable and, um, and repeated and therefore amounted to bullying. But when we think about the employer's relationship to this, the Commission noticed um, Sorry, um, the Commission found that the relevant bullying was not limited to a point in time and that the behaviour would continue so as long as the, co um, the comments were remained on the social network. So when we're thinking about an, a successful bullying claim, what, what we're doing is we're asking the Commission to ask the employer to stop whatever's happening. So in this case, we've got some problems where the, the there was, there's just a broken relationship between the employer and employee in the workplace. And taking into account some of the things that were coming up, um, there were instant, there, there was a very low level of trust. Um, there were instances where people have recorded conversations with other employees um, to prove what was being said at the time. Uh, they, he, he'd spoken to a number of employees about issues in the workplace and said that they don't want to get involved and they don't want to be named because they're um, and they're reluctant to come come forward as witnesses. So this this is a situation where I think the employer has fundamentally failed to get control of this situation and it really does turn to mm. pot, doesn't it? And this mm. uh, bullying claim gets a bit out of control. And uh, when we talk a little bit about how investigations are run, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to this case because there's a lot of stuff going on that uh, that <laughs> needed to be investigated that just was left to uh, left out in the open. Just kind of left to running around. Devices, yeah. So when we're talking about bullying in social media, what, what the Commission concluded was if the post is up, then the bullying is continuing. So it may be one post, but if it's there, it's happening over and over and over again. And that's something we've really got to be mindful of. Mm. Um, we know that bullying needs to happen more than once, and the argument is obviously, but it's only one post, but that's not enough. So we need to think about what's actually happening out there on that social media page, how it's affecting the employees, and as an employer, what are we actually doing uh, to support that? So we've been talking through our real key areas of exposure, mm. and we've really been talking about what can the employers do to kind of mitigate their liability. So what we're really talking about here is, is vicarious liability. So vicarious liability is essentially when the employer is on the hook for what the employee gets up to and does. And when we think about um, the Anti-Discrimination Act and the Racial Discrimination Act, essentially it's saying that the employer is always vicariously liable for what the employee does. And we really need to be careful and mindful of that. So what we're going to be doing next is we're going to be working on how once, once since we know that the employer is always going to be liable for these actions, how do we work on that? What do we do next? As an employer, what are we going to do to mitigate that liability so we're not on the hook for all that money? Because we know that uh, employees see employers as, as in, um, entities that have deep pockets and uh, they're the ones that are going to be sued. So let's see if we can talk about how to mitigate that. Yeah, so one of the key areas obviously is developing a policy. Mm -hmm. So policies and you know, there, there are some views out there that they're not worth the paper they're written on. And I 
very much disagree with it. Um, time and time again, it, it saves employers. But they need to be effective. Um, and really what we're talking about here is when we first develop a policy, is turn our minds to what we're trying to stop. So we've been talking for a bit, but I want to throw it kind of back to you guys. What are some of the things that we might want to, in our policy, try and, try and stop? What are the real dangers that might happen on social media? In, in my world, it's defamation with people commenting Defamation comes up a lot in my space. I've been defamed, yeah, in the workplace. There are a lot of defences to defamation and it is incredibly hard to get up on. When we think of defamation, what we're thinking about is uh, a statement that is either not true or objectively or to the person who's made it, they don't believe it is also true. Genuine opinion, genuine feeling that it's, it was true at the time. So I think when we think about defamation, what we're thinking about perhaps is workplace bullying, um, the previous slide. Because if we're posting something that is unfavourable about a different employee, they're essentially bullying that employee or harassing or intimidating that employee. It might amount to defamation, but at the end of the day, what we're, do what we're trying to do is stop the behaviour from happening. And if we can get a bullying um, policy in place that prevents them from posting uh, unfavourable messages about fellow employees on social media, that's going to that's gonna mitigate a lot of that weird defamation stuff. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, what else? Uh, so we've got sort of defamatory or bullying type yeah. statements about other employees. Unfavourable statements. What else? What, what can an employee post on their, you know, for example, my to be doing? I would imagine bringing MJT law in disrepute. If you're doing something silly with MJT on your shirt, Reputational risk is what you're talking yeah. about. Going um, to a pub, jumping on top of a bar in your MJT shirt. Yeah. And, I, and someone photographs that. And I've posted on my, you know, my Facebook. Had a great time last night. Came to work drunk. <laughs> so, and it's abundantly clear that I'm representing the company. <laughs> yes. What else? What about uh, potentially talking about confidential information? Um, so uh, speaking about the clients that mm. we've got. Um, there was a massive case with Virgin years ago where a couple of airline attendants were pop popping on Facebook, you know, how, how horrible their clients were on the, on the flights. There was, uh, there was massive problems about that mm. and that was all linked to the employer um, and, mm. and the conduct of the employer. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to get you to stop and think about um, when we think about developing a policy, we first of all need to consider what is it that we're trying to prevent or trying to encourage? Yeah, we, we, we get a lot of people come, employers come to us and say, I want you to, really good example, I want a policy on COVID testing. Yep. Yeah, but what does that mean? What are we actually trying to achieve here? COVID testing is a thing already. Why do you need a policy on it? So we need to ask more questions to delve down into the situation to see whether or not we need a policy on this testing situation. And it goes to, I know that we've, we've written here, consider what you might want to stop. But you might also consider not only what we want to stop, but what do we want to encourage? Mm. You know, what does our ideal employee look like? 
and how do we want them to behave on social media? And then it should be said that this goes for kind of all aspects yeah. of code of conduct for employees. But really, what do we want to see on their Facebook page? What are your values as employers? And what are you trying to encourage your employees to also have those values in? So what we're trying to do is we're trying to draw them back to the good and see them away from the bad. So we've got there, uh, think about how you might want to stop it. So what kind of practical things can we tell our employees that you know, will reduce essentially our risk? Um, so with that, we're, we're encouraging them to be diligent, mm. um, to not really bring the company into disrepute, um, to avoid at all costs or at all opportunities kind of drawing your personal life into your employment in a way that could be avoided. I know that I've spoken a lot this morning about that sometimes it's unavoidable. Um, but not, for example, posting on behalf of the company. Mm. I'm not saying I am from, you know, I'm Christy Santana, I'm from, you know, I'm speaking on behalf of MJT Law and this is what we think. Because that's not necessarily true unless it's really authorised. I really like the should we test on this point. And when we're talking about social media, we're talking also about people working from home a lot. And we've got, we've got, we, we've all seen the posts where someone's sitting there in their shirt and pyjama bottoms or they've got a kid sitting around them and they're taking a Zoom conference call and we think that's really sweet because they're trying to you know, do two things at the same time. But is that what an employer actually wants from that person working from home? Do that per does the employer really want that person to be focusing on a child, on a dog, on not being properly dressed while attending a meeting? Is this, is this what we're wanting here? So a policy can also provide direction as to what we are actually looking for here as well. I'm not certain that I would have been comfortable with Chris posting something in his gym jams while he was having a chat to a client um, about something really serious to do with their employment. And I'm not sure that client would have felt, if they saw that post, that that was something that they would have appreciated while they were paying for that time. So there's lots of things to consider when we think about social media and what's actually the impact here. And we're going to talk a little bit about mm. that in a little while, but you've got um, a piece of paper there which has a template policy on it. What we've done is we've given you some um, triggers. So if you are going to be drafting a policy from scratch, which is kind of hard, looking at a blank piece of paper is practically impossible, yeah? How do we get started? So what we've done is we've given you something to kind of get started. Um, I don't know if any of you are looking at drafting policies at the moment, but certainly what we're looking for here is think about what you need to stop or start. Think about how you want to achieve that goal. What are your values? What are you trying to, what are you trying to get your employees to do? Uh, is it clear? Have you just drafted a policy that's 20 pages long and no one is going to read it? Yeah. It's sometimes just not great to have. If, if you've got employees who are not readers, as just generally they're not, then giving them something that's 20 pages long is not going to encourage them to read it. Yeah, so think about how you're going to put this policy in place. I have seen pictorial policies, I think mm. they're really fun. As a lawyer, I can't kind of get my head around how to design those, but they, they are, you know, really, um, I think they're, they're really mm. engaging. Well, it really doesn't need to be a, a Bible. For example, um, one of my favourite ones in this sort of point is uh, Commonwealth Bank one. They are, it's one page, 
Mm. It's one page, but it does everything. Mm. Um, it's it's really easy to follow, um, and really it's really easy to enforce, which is one of the, the key areas. Mm. So it doesn't need to be a Bible. It doesn't need to be 20 pages with three pages of, of everything that you can't do. Because you can also point to the things that you want you to do, and anything that we don't want you to... Anything that we... It's outside of what we want to do isn't allowed. So the last thing you need to consider when it comes to policies is, is there a discriminatory element to it? It's a real trap. We want to write something, we want it to stop something, but are we being discriminatory at the same time? Um, we might be, again, talking about something that is for the safety of others. For a really long time, airline attendants had a height restriction, couldn't be below a certain height. Um, and that was really discriminatory to some cultures who had, were shorter than others. And they said, and the concept behind this height restriction for years and years was because they had to get things up and down from heights, and being a particular height, being under a particular height, meant it was dangerous. So, and that sounds fine, except it's discriminatory. So we need to look at we need to look at other ways we can encourage. And, and write these policies um, that doesn't doesn't discriminate. Um, and the trap that one falls into is this uh, um, indirect discrimination. It's not directly saying uh, something about a particular attribute. It's it's kind of giving that impression by by the way it's been drafted. So that's a, that's kind of the last trap I think mm. that mm. Um, employers might fall into if they're drafting their own policies. Sure. So, is the policy useful? Does it actually work? Um, I want to talk about a case that we've kind of called the urine test or the, the drug and alcohol test. It's a very, very recent, it was about two months ago. So what it involved was a employer who sold building supplies, timber, and employees sometimes attended work sites, but it was fairly rare, they were mostly salespeople. Um, and they had a zero tolerance, all in type policy for drug and alcohol. So what that really means is, doesn't matter whether you are attending the site all the time or if you are the receptionist in the, um, in the office, there is to be no alcohol or drugs in your system at any time. Or poppy seed cake. Or poppy seed cake. Has to be picked up by, by the testing mm. facility itself. Okay. So with this, policy, they would, when a plea began, they would sit them down, and amongst other policies as well, they would do a PowerPoint presentation and made sure that they really understood what it meant in the policies and what they really expected. They also did this as a matter of routine for even the existing employees. I believe they did it every sort of three months. And not only that, but they also enforced the policy with, I think, significant rigour. Um, in fact, uh, in one of their offices, uh, they fired uh, just over 90% of their workforce. That's overnight. Overnight. Uh, 13 employees who had all tested positive. Um, so really what we're seeing there is beyond doubt, if you are yeah, testing... Aggressive implementation of a zero-tolerance policy. And it's, it's really important to note, of the, for example, 13 employees that they had fired overnight, I'm sure there's some that they liked. There were some that were really high performers, but they were nevertheless breaching the policy and they were disciplined for it. So one day, uh, this particular employee, uh, they 
um, come to work and they're doing testing that day and they were doing testing through a third party um, which is a really good idea mm. because obviously uh, they're building suppliers they don't know how to conduct uh, drug and alcohol testing as you can probably imagine uh, and funnily enough she initially poured just water into the cup uh, which was naturally picked up fairly quickly uh, she then refused to provide a proper sample this was a urine test um, sample yep so she refused on the basis that she had a urinary tract infection uh, and requested that she get a swab test instead now the employee it came out in the case that she knew that swab tests weren't as accurate as urine tests were um, and also covered a shorter period of time than urine tests did. Um, nevertheless, she was stood down um, and given time to attend and give a urine sample. So she was not to come to work until yeah. she was cleared. So she refused to take the urine test and she said, I want, I, I've got a urine tract infection. And they said, and the employer said, okay, that's fine. We'll stand you down until you can take your urine test. And they gave her a fair amount of time. They gave her about nine days, yeah. actually, which I suppose in my view, um, although that's completely out of the abundance of caution, I'm not sure they needed to do so. Probably not. But it's they wise it anyway. nonetheless. During that time, her urine tract infection had healed up. And... Uh, yeah, so she continued uh, and continued to refuse and subsequently she was, she was fired. Um, and she brought a uh, unfair dismissal uh, claim on the basis that uh, she ought to have been given the chance to provide that swab test, uh, that the policy was unreasonable given that she, really she was a office worker, um, she didn't feel as though she posed a risk or anything like that, um, and that the urine test was nevertheless invasive, if mm. you want to call it that. Mm. She was unsuccessful, uh, and what the commission found was the policy was well written in a way that it didn't give the particular employee the ability to elect the type of testing. So it was really in the discretion of mm. the employee as to the method, but it also spoke to really whether the policy 